I got injured two months into the playoffs. We were a playoff team. Just the timing of it, you know, felt all those same feelings. Why me? Why now? You know, all the expectations, you know, just kind of your whole life comes kind of crashing down. That's how I felt at 21, mind you, fresh out of high school, no college education. What am I going to do? Right. Career threatening injury. But the gratitude, that was when things changed for me. Being accepting of my circumstances and saying this was supposed to happen and being grateful for that. And I think when I started embracing that, that's when my journey started to really take me to whatever my destiny was going to be. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. All right, I'm going to introduce each of you, and then I'm just going to kind of lob questions at you guys, and we can maybe just hopefully have a dialogue between, between the two of you. Cool? Yeah. Yep. All right. Alex, University of Utah, finished fourth in voting in the 2004 Heisman Awards, 49ers in 2005. Let's go. First overall pick in the 2005 draft, right? Seven years as the Niners quarterback, then went to the Chiefs in 2013, spent four years there, three years with the Redskins, and you are currently an analyst for ESPN? Yeah. And you recently, when did this come out? You were just inducted or asked to be inducted How does it, into the College Hall of Fame? Yeah, I just became eligible. Congrats. I don't know how they do that. Thank you. Congrats. Yeah. It's incredible. You were ranked the Sports Illustrated best looking quarterback in the NFL <laughs> in, I wish. in I 2015. Wish. So uh, no, no surprise. Sean, you grew up in Chicago, went to Peoria High School, committed to Duke, and then went straight to the NBA right, right after, which is insane because you got selected fourth. Insane. At, insane, right? Yeah. Did they stop doing that? Yeah, they changed the rule. Brought it back. Like, yeah, it's just bringing it back, yep. bringing it back. They're bringing it back. Oh, now you're That's allowed right. to go back into... You can go and do a year in the G League or overseas, but... Uh, before I can... Wait, here. why do you say it's insane? Why do you say it's insane? I just say it. I was the number one pick. I came out early, too. I was 20 years old. I just think all the growing pains that I went through as a 20-year-old to step into that role of being the face of a franchise and all that comes with it and the expectations. There's a lot that comes with that mentally that off of the field or the court. And I couldn't fathom doing it straight out of high school. I mean, to do like is ridiculous. It's unbelievable. 10-ish teams in 10 years before joining the Warriors. Is that right? That's right. 10 teams. 10 teams in 10 years. Then you joined the Warriors in 2014? 2014. Win your first chip in 2015? That's right. First year. Second in 2017, third in 2018, and then most recently your fourth with the front office this last year. That's right. It's amazing. Full circle. Okay, one more clap. One more clap. It's unbelievable. (laughs) It's literally unbelievable. I'm going to play a video clip. Before I do, I wanted to talk a little bit about the pressure of expectations. 20 years old when you came into the NFL, first pick in the draft, 18 years old, can you just walk me through, especially coming from the places that you came from, going into the spotlight in the way that you did, just talk to me about maybe internally, like what was 18-year-old Sean and what was 20-year-old Alex feeling internally when externally everyone's telling you, you have the world, like this is yours. So, Yeah, for me, I mean, I, I never dreamt I would play professional football. I mean, I think I was the kid that was too realistic. 
I, I knew the odds and I never thought it was achievable. I was a normal kid growing up. I wasn't an all-star everything. And so for me, and I didn't play football till high school. And even when I got to high school, very much under the radar, just kind of cruising along. I loving it. Football had kind of been held. My parents didn't let me play when I was young. So it was something that had been kind of held for me for a little bit. And I finally got to play as a freshman and I just loved it. I loved everything about it. Again, I wasn't great, but it just didn't matter. I was, it was kind of living my dream. I had one scholarship offer. And I think if I had a dream as a kid, it was to play college football. I love the idea of college sports. I like being part of something bigger than yourself, getting your education, the pride, the connection with the student body. Those were all things that I think if I had a, a dream as a kid, it was that. And, you know, they do these recruiting rankings and services, you know, how many stars you have as a recruit. How many, I had zero, none. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, and I say that I stepped foot on campus. No one expected a thing from me. They don't know who I was. And there's a lot of freedom in that. And again, I was living my dream. So just loving every day, getting my education, playing ball. Like that was it. I, I never expected anything beyond that. We didn't have any aspirations of playing pro. And fortunate enough to have great teammates and great coaches. And in the blink of an eye, all of a sudden, I'm going to the Heisman. And then a couple of months later, I'm the number one pick in the NFL draft as a 20-year-old kid. I'm on the cover of every newspaper in the country. And life changed for me overnight. And I had never dealt with those expectations. And I get drafted by the San Francisco 49ers as a quarterback, an organization steeped in QB legacy. I got to be Joe Montana and Steve Young. I'm also the number one pick. There's the validation in that of not being a bust. I got to be Peyton Manning. Like, that's what I felt like I walked around with every second of the day. I had to validate this because there was this giant fear that I, like deep down in, an insecurity, right? Am I good enough? Am I really deserving of this? And I constantly felt like I had to prove that. And I think with that also, there was this huge fear of failure. I mean, I can remember being a young kid and I'm running here. I'm getting ready to run out of a tunnel to go play at Candlestick Park. This amazing opportunity, something that like, again, in your wildest dreams, who, who wouldn't watch this? Like a pinch yourself moment. And my head, all I'm thinking about, I'm just like, do I like, God, what if I throw a pick? What if they, what if they boo me? What are they going to write about me in the paper? All these negative things. And I've essentially distracted myself. The weight of it. And for me, my own self-doubt has taken me and distracted myself. And I haven't even given myself a chance at success. The reality is this is incredibly hard to go play quarterback, to go play basketball, to go try what we're doing. And it takes immense focus and de focus on details. My mind couldn't 15 other places other than where it needed to be. And it took me several years to learn that. And again, it was something I had never dealt with at that point. I, could, I walked around on campus the year before and I didn't even get recognized at my own school. And now all of a sudden you know, dealing with this. So it, it definitely was a huge learning experience for me and took several years for me to kind of find my way. Just uh, nostalgia right there. Just listening to, to that whole story. I want to go sit in the stands and like, <laughs> just, you know, dive in. I was on the other end of that spectrum. My junior year, I went to All-American camp. I was a nobody and I went back to school and then I'm in all these magazines. It's like the top five player in the country. And it was like all this pressure you know, cameras coming to Peoria, Illinois, which where is that on the map, right? It's like middle America. I'm just this 17-year-old kid going to school every day, having dreams of going to the NBA growing up in Illinois, watching Michael Jordan, watching the Bulls do what they do. That was always my dream to make it. I just didn't realize how real it was until I hit 17. And now I'm in Sports Illustrated and ESPN and all these different magazines and publications Fast forward, you know, did the same thing my senior year, 
LeBron James goes to the NBA out of high school. We all saw how that turned out. After you. This is uh, before me. Before you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's a year ahead of me. We have the top five, top ten team in the country. We're having televised games, nationally televised games. So just a lot of pressure, you know, a lot of pressure to perform. Something you just grow into. And then I commit to Duke my senior year. I'm all in. Coach K, I get the call. I got to go. You know, it's Coach K. And then uh, just the buzz is building. Buzz is building. I'm playing these All-American games. And they're like, man, you know, Chris Mullins at your game. He's like the GM at the time of the Warriors, actually. And uh, Steve Kerr and all these other guys are showing up at, at my high school game. It's like, I used to watch him on TV. Like, what's he doing here? It's like, they're here to watch you. It's dawning on me that this is a possibility. Like, my dream can come true. I can actually possibly go to the NBA. The season ends, fast forward, and I hold a workout. I don't hire an agent. I hold a workout one-on-o. And I was training at the time with Michael Jordan's trainer, Tim Grover. And there was 30 NBA GMs there watching me just run up and down the court, dunk a basketball, see how athletic he is. And it's like, wow, this is real. I'm seeing John Paxton. It's like, this is real. And I remember Tim saying, you're not going below seven in the draft. It's guaranteed you're not going. I'm like, what are the odds of going to college now and possibly getting injured or going to the NBA and fulfilling my dream. And mind you, I'm skinny now. Just imagine what I look like, <laughs> you know, in high school, like a beanpole. And so, you know, I was all in on college and developing and growing and going that route, but it was the opportunity of a, of a lifetime. And so for me, when I decided to make that decision, I had to call Coach K, tell him I wasn't coming. One of the hardest calls I had to make at the time and ended up going into the draft. Uh, it was the fourth pick overall, and there was like nine of us out of high school that year, the year after LeBron. And it was like, who are all these kids going to the NBA? You know, but it was always a dream of ours to do that. And it was something that I leaned into, stepped into. But what Alex talked about, you know, the fear of failure, the fear of flying, all of those things are real. And you experience those things and imposter syndrome and you know, am I good enough? You know, am I worthy? Ultimately, as a competitor, though, your expectations are the highest of yourself. And so that's kind of what I leaned into. Do you guys feel like it was exacerbated, those feelings? Because from the outside looking in, your family and your friends are telling you how lucky you are, how incredible this is, how this is the ride of a lifetime. Everybody wants to be you. But on the inside, you feel deeply insecure, like this deep imposter syndrome, this idea where, oh my God, if I step onto the football field or onto the basketball court and I throw a pick, everyone's going to find out that I'm not what they thought that I was. Do those things ever cross paths for you? I think there's this huge, first off, you're stepping into a locker room, 17, 18 years old, you're 20, like you're stepping in, all of a sudden you've been playing amongst peers, but I'll never forget when I first saw him, I saw Bryant Young in the locker room. I mean, he had dumbbells in his hands that weighed more than me (laughs) in each hand. He's like bench press, and here he is, he's like in his 13th year, he's got his full family, like this is my teammate now. I mean, I'm 20 and I'm supposed to be the leader, by the way, because I'm the quarterback, so I'm supposed to lead Bryant Young. Larry Allen, like some of these guys have played with it, but because of the position I play that you're in, Hey, you're the leader. I think there's also this perspective that we're strong athletes. We're tough. And I think for me as a young guy, I buried all those emotions. I thought I was the only one going through them 
And so I just buried it and I tried to pretend like it wasn't happening. And I think that only made it worse. We start playing long enough. I'm sure Sean could tell you, like played with, I can't tell you how many first ballot Hall of Famers, biggest, baddest guys in the world. Every single person deals with it at some point. Everybody deals with all these emotions we're talking about. They are human emotions. For me, the important thing is what you do with it. How do you move past it and move beyond it? But for me, a big deal was finally getting to the point, like playing with some of these guys that I know I admire and looked up to them and then being open and honest about it. Like, no, this is things we all deal with. But again, like, how do you get to a place? What does it take to, to find success, right? And like for me, getting back to the details of your job, like those are the things that matter. We all fail. You can't, again, that's something you got to move beyond. Yeah, for me, it was like burying myself in the work. You know, I was like, that's how I mastered. It's like, I'm going to just work as possibly hard as I can. But that's what every athlete does, right? And I think now it's becoming more mainstream to talk about these things. The anxiety, depression, human emotions, I think that we all go through. But, I mean, you're talking about the pressure now of carrying a, a brand or carrying a team or carrying a locker room. Like for me, I had that same feeling walking in. <laughs> Walking in at 19, you know, I got a big afro coming from Peoria, Illinois, looking like Richard Pryor, and, you know, big long socks. And who is this kid? You know, it's like, pass me the ball, you know, it's like it's my contract here, you know, and I'm just here to play. I'm this joyous kid because to me, basketball was a passion. It was something that I did because I love to do, but quickly realized that, I mean, this is it's a livelihood, how a lot of the athletes make their living and you start to walk into some of those pressures. One thing that surprised me and scared me when I sat across recording podcasts with every single person in this room was that we shared this very similar quality of, I don't know if anxiety is the right word, but there is this chip on your shoulder, this tickle that makes you move, this imposter syndrome that gets you going. And I always admired the people that I would sit across the table from because they were these amazingly successful business people. I got scared at some point because I was like, is the success that you're having, is the prerequisite to that having this crazy imposter syndrome where, Sean, then you bury yourself in work? The way that it shows up for you can in some ways feel like a positive motivator to get your ass going. I don't know. I don't know if that resonates, but I just wonder, like, can those two things live together? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I look at it as confidence is something that's strong, too, on the other end of that. For me, the more work that I put in, the more results that I started to see on the court, the more confidence that I was building in myself. It's like, look, I do belong. I belong here. Then you go against Kobe Bryant. It's like, oh, oh I like, you know, like he's one of the best to do it. Right. And you see, you know, there, there are levels. But for me, just burying myself in the work, it has been an accelerator for me, you know, to give me that confidence and to fill that hole of, being worthy, if you will. So that's, that's probably the best way I'd answer it. I think for me, you're definitely onto something. I, growth doesn't happen without struggle. I firmly believe that, right? And, and I think if you're constantly potentially thinking that you aren't good enough and that you aren't enough, it can drive you, right? It can drive you to constantly push yourself uh, to get better, to get there, to prove it. Like, so I think there's a ton of great examples in sports and or business of people that are, it can almost be borderline manic, you know, that in that pursuit, because it is constantly driving them. Tom Brady, he's 45 years old. I'm going to turn 39 in a couple months. I played 16 years. I played a lot of football. He's six years older than me. Steady just retired. I find it, it's one of the most amazing things, but it's not dumb luck. 
Like the guy is obsessive about how he takes care of his body. And so I think there's something there now. <laughs> Does it always result in balance or, you know, I think right. at some point you, you nope. do got to get to the other side of the coin, hopefully. But yeah, I think there's some, there's something there. The funny thing is like, you have all this hype around both of you. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you didn't necessarily in the beginning deliver on the hype. I think Alex, your first season, you played in nine games. You threw. Is it was a right? train wreck. Is you threw? <laughs> it was a train wreck. One touchdown pass. And one. Eleven. Picks? I got one. It was 11. the last, and it was in the last game of the season. By the way, I got. I finally got, got one. one. You got one. Yeah. You got one. Yeah, and eleven picks. It was ugly, to say the least. And Sean, you did you feel like you got off to a hot start? No. <laughs> no. Injuries for sure. Injuries. Yeah. And did yeah. the injury bug kind of get both of you pretty early on? It got me, yeah. I played in 30 games. You know, that was kind of the biggest adjustment. I mean, 30 games was the season in high school. And I uh, go from that to 82. And so I played a high school season, and, you know, in my, my first year. And was like, wow, this is a game every other day. And so that was the biggest, biggest adjustment for me, injuries early on. I think for me, it wasn't injuries, but I mean, again, one of the rewards of being an early pick is you go to a terrible team. And typically a terrible organization. And there was a lot of dysfunction going on around me as well. I had seven offensive coordinators in seven years, a lot of turnover, three head coaches in seven years. Like, so you have all these other variables as well that affect you. And guess what? You're the guy out there on the field holding the football. None of those other people are. And I think also, like, obviously I said, I, I had my own struggles that I was dealing with. So there's all these, there's all these things going on around you, all these other variables, but no, you certainly not. I mean, I, my first five years in the league were <laughs> terrible, certainly. And then all of a sudden, for me, as a top pick, you're haunted by this word bust. And it's, it's always there. And uh, trying to overcome that and prove that wrong. And, and I certainly dug myself a big hole. It was hard to get out of. Can you talk more about that? What do you mean haunted by the bust? Hey, you're the number one pick. I mean, I will forever be linked with Aaron Rodgers. We were the same draft class. I got drafted 25th overall. Like, I mean, there's certain things there where I was taken ahead of every other guy in my draft class. And I think with more than anything, you want to prove that you want to justify and validate that as a young kid, right? That I was, they were right. You, when you don't get off to a good start, it makes it even harder, I think. And that certainly exacerbated that whole, this whole mindset, you know, and how you perceive these things. And it wasn't until you finally got some successes or some sustained success that certainly for me, thankful for some amazing teammates and coaches that helped me find a better way. Uh, to get back to a better perspective towards this, you know, it is an amazing challenge. I'm being grateful for it, knowing that it's not going to last forever. Like there were some, this is the beauty of a team environment. Like th that's who helped me the most, coaches and teammates. We're going to roll a 80, 90 second clip. And part of the reason why it was so special to me to have both of these guys on the same stage is because they dealt with an incredibly similar, what should have been, career-ending injury. It was career-ending for other athletes. And the video is Joe Namath, who had the same injury as both of them, who was a legendary quarterback, uh, narrating something about Alex. And Joe's career ended because of this exact same injury. And so there wasn't a fancy video of you, Sean, <laughs> about your injury. I'm sorry. So uh, we're going to roll this 80-second uh, clip. And then I just want to talk to you guys about recovering from that setback. In a single moment, your whole life can change. And just like that, what you took for granted is no longer there. 
I've been there before. Same injury, same leg, even down to the same day. They don't expect you to come back from this one. I know, I didn't. You see, when faced with the unimaginable, there's no one waiting with a roadmap to show you the way out. You have to pave it yourself. It takes every ounce of grit you have. Broken leg, 17 surgeries, a serious infection, a leg nearly amputated. He shouldn't even be here right now. It's in these life-changing moments that you find out exactly what you're made of. You reject pain. You embrace discomfort. You get up. You relearn how to walk. You relearn how to run. What we witnessed was no simple comeback. It was one of the greatest comebacks in sports history. It was the living, breathing embodiment of resilience and courage. Alex, you're an inspiration to me. You're an inspiration to all of us. That was awesome. I've probably watched that clip like 10 times and I still want to cry and get goosebumps <laughs> like all over. It's literally unbelievable. So Alex, I want to start with you. And then Sean, I want to talk about your injury. Your son is back here actually reflecting on that and like seeing your son and knowing what you did for the game. What is your reflection today on that time, that part of your life, the stresses that it put on you, et cetera? Oh, I think immense gratitude for where I'm at and everything I went through to go do the things I can do in life, given what I went through and what life is like for me when I get out of bed in the morning with my leg, like the things that I can go accomplish and have confidence that I can go accomplish them with my wife and kids. So there's immense gratitude for life and everything that I went through, but that, it took me a long time to get there. There was a big chunk of my journey was the other way, was the poor me, how did this happen? Why me not accepting what happened? But for me to look back on it, feeling great about the, my life going forward and the things that I can do. Watching that, did that give, I don't know, did that bring back any Goosebumps. emotions? Yeah. I mean, again, it's so nostalgic. My injury happened at the early part of my career. So how early? I was 21. My contract year as well. And you were having a good season. Yeah, right? good season. Starting in line, uh, Chris Kamen, who was drafted ahead of me, uh, just signed max extension, rookie deal. I was on par to do the same. Literally, you know, we're going into the playoffs and... I got injured two months into the playoffs. We were a playoff team, and the playoffs is usually where you can really make your case. Uh, so just the timing of it, you know, felt all those same feelings. Why me? Why now? You know, all the expectations, just kind of your whole life comes kind of crashing down. That's how I felt at 21, mind you, uh, fresh out of high school, no college education. What am I going to do, right? Career-threatening injury, but the gratitude. That was when things changed for me. Being accepting of my circumstances and saying this was supposed to happen and being grateful for that. And I think when I started embracing that, that's when my journey started to really take me to whatever my destiny was gonna be. Did it feel like stages of grief? 
right? Where you talk about first you deny it, then you hate it, then slowly over time you accept it. I wonder, like, how long did it take you before you got into a mode of, okay, this is how it is? Yeah, for me, two years. Two uh, years? Yeah, because, I mean, that's, that was my up and down period of, like, I was in and out the league. I, was, I missed my whole next season. That was wash. I probably dealt with the case of depression early on. I mean, watching you, you know, sitting there in the hospital, you know, all the thoughts, that's all you can do is just think, you know, you, you know, your legs sitting up in a cast and bleeding and everything else. And they're wheeling you down to rehab the day after surgery and, you know, trying to crank on your leg and putting you in through all these devices. You have to teach yourself how to walk. It's just, again, all of the sorrow and the pit, right? It's like, those are natural feelings. But for me, getting past that, it was like, okay, I can do this. You know, I hopped on a bike. Oh, I can do this. All right. I hopped on a treadmill. Okay, I can do this. So it's like you give yourself these small victories that over time end up adding up. And two years was the mental hurdle because now it's getting back on the court and, you know, having to prove myself amongst the greatest athletes in the world, which at one time I was one of those. And now I'm you know, I got the, the wood leg, you know, that I'm jogging out here. And it's like, all right, I got to guard uh, Steve Nash tonight. I got to guard, you know, Baron Davis tonight. I got to, you know, Allen Iverson. It's like, okay, how? But after getting over the hurdle, signing my contract after two years for me, that was like, okay, I belong. I can do this. I played 75 games. That was the most at the age of 25. But that was four years after my injury at 21. So it was, it was a long journey. You said playing, like a whole other thing was playing. Like, didn't the doctors tell you guys, like, your leg might be amputated? At what point did it transition from hopefully I can play with my kids to hopefully I can play my sport? How long did that take? For me, yeah, I mean, I, it, it was months. For mine, it was a little different. Obviously, I was at the end of my career. Or, I mean, I'd already played, four, this was in my 14th season when this happened. But I was really bitter towards football. Again, we're the greatest athletes in the world, right? Like all this thing, we have the best healthcare in the world. I broke my leg and I was very naive to the potential infection risk that I certainly had. But the doctors are gonna put me back together. We got the best, again, the best doctors in the world and I'm gonna be fine, I'm gonna move on with my career. And then for me to, you know, a few days later when the infection set in and then to wake up a couple of weeks later on my deal faced with, they already amputated half my leg. I had flesh-eating bacteria, I had all these, debridements and all of a sudden then and hey we still think the best thing is to amputate your whole leg now for me it was like, how, how do we get here like how did I get here again it was this strong disbelief and again kind of the, the pity party and then I'm stuck in a wheelchair I've got a steel cage bolted to my leg and you want to talk about a lot of time to think Sean said it like you're just all you do like I just thought the best of my life was behind me like you name the activity I won't be able to do it again and from a walk with my wife to chasing my kids to going skiing, hiking, like you name it, like I'm not gonna be able to do it. And so I just dwelled on that. I was lucky enough, I got what was called the Secretary of Defense designation. And it's for a civilian that's deemed to have a warlike injury. And you get access to military medical care. Cause at that time after my infection had set in and they had removed a huge chunk of my leg and they had to move other parts of my body down there to try and save it. Like I had lost enough ability. The closest thing for me for a roadmap back where some of our servicemen and women from the wars in the Middle East and the roadside bombs and IEDs 
And so the military and the doctors had really come to become the experts in the rehabilitation process and getting back. And some of these servicemen and women had gone back to serve and been rangers and seals. And so I'll never forget months. This is months and months into my journey. I got access to this amazing center. It's called the Center for the Intrepid in San Antonio. And I took my, I just graduated to crutches. I still couldn't put my leg on the ground. And I got to take my first visit down there. And one of the cool things about this place is they, the military believes in this theory called group suck, which means you endure these crazy things together. And so they built this amazing rehab facility where everybody does a rehab out in the open. Most clinical settings for rehab is like, you go back with your PT into a private room on a deal and you do it alone and then you leave. You get out and you come leave. Well, this place is all out in the open. And again, I'm hiding behind my bandages. I'm not truly accepting my new reality. Here you are amongst servicemen and women, people that literally sacrifice life and limb and you don't really feel like you belong. And man, they are burying their scars out in the open. Amputees, double amputees, bad burn victims. A lot of people, a lot of servicemen and women with injuries like mine did, again, burying their scars and moving forward with their life. And for me, it was this huge wake-up call huge, like to see that. Like, I couldn't have been in a different place. Again, I was very bitter towards the game of football at that point so doubtful about what the rest of my life was going to look like. Here was this great example in front of my eyes, and I got to do rehab in front of them, with them. It was the first place I ever said out loud. I said it that day that I want to try and play football again. And they were the only people allow, like letting me believe that. Hey, we think you can do more. The prognosis for me was so at that point wasn't very good. But for me, again, it was that example, that team environment that really allowed me to ever have the courage or audacity to say it. Because, oh, yeah, like I, for some reason, I decided to document this thing, too. So I had a camera sitting there <laughs> recording this. And it just looked like I had failure written all over it. But I think to get the courage to just, I wasn't scared to fail. Because, in fact, I kind of thought I would. And I, I still didn't care. For me, it was about getting the rest of my life back. Sean, one of the things that, as I was preparing for this, struck me was one of the 10 teams that you played on was a G League team. Yeah. Right? I was putting myself in your shoes on every magazine cover fourth pick in the draft, have this injury, and the G League was after the injury, right? Then you're playing in the G League. What did you feel like? Well, first off, it was the D League, which was totally different than the G League, okay? <laughs> it sounds how it, it was. I mean, literally. <laughs> Tulsa, that's where I landed in Tulsa. And it was humbling, to say the least. We're traveling private, you know, uh, in the NBA, not private in the D-League, right? Carrying my bags, almost got to tape myself for the games, right? I mean, so just the level of the D-League, it's humbling in that experience for me, you know, because I had to come to grips with the fact that this is the best thing for me. I need to play. And that was my opportunity to play. And it wasn't in the NBA, which was always my dream to make it in the NBA. So at the time, you know, it, it could feel like a demotion, you know, it feels like you're being demoted. It feels like a failure in a way. But again, it's the war of the mind. And for me, that at 23 years old, 24, that was the first, first bit of adversity that I'd really faced of not being the guy, the best player on the team. It's not all about you, you know? And that was a humbling experience for me, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because again, going through that journey, I appreciated every little bit of playing, you know, and working my way back and then, you know, landing on the Warriors. It was like that was full circle because now I got a chance to really appreciate the moment. It's like, no, guys, 
trust me, you had a bad game. It's not worth it, you know, because what I was able to go through, you know, it was like my experience of being demoted, playing in the D League, working my way back. It just gave me a newfound appreciation. When you're in the moment of crisis, and maybe this is when you're in the hospital bed, maybe it's when they tell you your leg is going to be amputated, but just generally speaking, how do you make decisions? Because I imagine they come to you first and they say, what do you want to do? And then you kind of got to figure out like, all right, here's the things that I have to do. Like maybe this is kind of an ambiguous question, but is there a thought process or a sequence of events that you go through in your head when the world is absolutely insane around you? To be like, okay, how do I approach this problem right now? And in some cases, it was limbs on your body. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, luckily enough, when things were really dire and like I was in, I was septic in the hospital. My, I mean, I was out of it, and my wife luckily made all those decisions, and unfortunately, obviously, carried the brunt of all that. No, I mean, you start with the basics. Certainly, it's how do I get to the bathroom? You know, like it's like, it's like how do I get out of bed today? The steps are so small that you first start with, and they're hard. They're really hard. People always ask me, like, why would you go back and play football? Like, they just don't understand it. And I get it that it does sound crazy, but for me, it was about getting the rest of my life back, that it would be a vehicle that I knew if I could chase and pursue this, that I, I could get back and claw back as much as I could. You do, and you do set goals. And I, and I think this is also, I'd love to hear what you think about this, Sean. Like, for me, it was amazingly free when I said, I want to play football again. Again, I'm on crutches. And I put this amazing goal out there, right? It's 2,000 steps away. It's absurd to say. But for me then, again, it was like, well, the reality then goes to like, what's next? And for me, it was like, well, it literally, it was like, I got to be able to stand on my leg. That was the next thing. And so I just, all I focused on, literally from a rehab standpoint, professionally, like every time I was, I got to be able to put my foot down and stand on my leg. And I worked my ass off to go try and do that for long time. And then I finally did it, right? And there's like a quick celebration and then it's to what's next. And then like, now it's like, well, I got to take a baby step. You got to teach yourself how to walk. But like, I do think the importance of certainly we put these big goals out there, but like, I'm not daily waking up. Like I'm going to play football. I can't even walk. There is a progression. And I think the, again, to focus on that, literally what's next, what can I do tangible today to get incrementally better? Yeah. And so many parallels because that's where I was like, you know, literally I couldn't go to the bathroom laying down, right? It's like, no, no, I got to make it to the bathroom because, you know, I don't want to get an infection. Like, you know, it's like, that's the worst case scenario. So just to co-sign what Alex is saying, I mean, it's so true. Just the, the daily victories, you know, like the first time I made it onto the bike, I cried and I didn't try. It was emotion that came over me because it was like, wow, this is another hurdle that I couldn't even see, you know, literally two months ago. But that's what gave me joy. You're competing against yourself. Like my dad's an avid golfer and he's like, son, you don't know. Like when you pick the sticks up, you know, like you're going to be competing against yourself. It's the mind. Never played. But I'm like, that's what I went through in my rehab process because I'm watching all these guys that I used to play against, you know, and used to compete against on TV every night as I'm going through this rehab. And I can't do that. I can't play. I'm so far away. And when I had my injury back in 2007, and no one at the time in the NBA had that type of injury. So there was nobody I could call. Literally, I, I researched, like, who had this type of injury? What was the injury, can you say? Yeah, I tore my ACL, my MCL, my PCL, dislocated my femur and my tibia. And, yeah, I think that's it. 
But, I mean, it was Willis McGahee. I don't know if you, you know, again, it's, it was like that was the only person that I tried to reach out. And, you know, I got nothing, you know. And so it was like I'm just in the dark competing against myself. Don't know if I'm going to make it back. Don't know if I'm going to play again. You know, in my mind, that's, I believe. But, you know, the doctors are like, there is no roadmap. You know, I can't tell you if it's a year, if it's two years. You know, you just got to keep going. So, again, the daily victories of, you know, setting goals, small goals for yourself that you can tackle to get to the next step. You both witnessed what I think is peak greatness. I'd say for you, Sean, it was take your pick, but I'll pick Steph Curry. And I think for you, Alex, maybe Pat Mahomes backing you up and then coming onto the field. I think after you handed the baton to him, metaphorically speaking, I wonder... Are there any qualities or characteristics when you look at those guys to say, and by the way, you guys are built different, but for you to say that about somebody else, like these dudes are built different. Are there a few things that come to mind at the top of your list? Maybe Sean for you and Steph and and you, Alex, for Mahomes that, that come to mind? Yeah, for me, Steph, it's the consistency. It's the nature. Uh, We talk about this nature nurture. You know, we were all coached, we all were pushed, and we all have this competitive desire. And you have to have that to, you know, make it at the top level in any industry, you know, right? I mean, it's it's competitive field out there. But his nature is just different from a standpoint of being the same person every single day. I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I don't wake up happy every single day. And not to say he's happy, just to say from a leadership standpoint, usually the team goes by the best you know, the leader is either the best player or the most vocal. You know, he happens to have been the best player by characteristic. So he's our leader. And, you know, just core values, how he carries himself, how he deals with failure. I mean, that's huge. I played on 10 NBA teams. The difference between good teams and the bad teams were guys that you could lose with. I have to say that again because it's so powerful because we all deal with that differently. Like the difference between the bad locker rooms and the good locker rooms were guys that we can lose with. And when I tell you 2016 was by far one of the worst losses that any of us has ever had, having a championship pretty much ripped out of our hands. It was like I sat in there. I felt the same feeling. I looked around. I saw the same look on everybody's faces and not one guy pointed the finger and that was powerful and it started with him right because he was our leader and he wasn't saying man if this dude would have just gave us more you know if this guy would have gave us more or get him out of here you know which it happens in pro sports you know especially guys that are that talented and have that much authority over a locker room and organization so to me it's his consistency and his nature you know, and desire to be great at all costs. Just to double down on that really quick, this idea that the most vocal versus the most talented, is it annoying if you are not the most talented, but you are the most vocal? Does that rub you the wrong way? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? Also too, the devil's in the details as far as like, if those guys are the hardest working, then you know, they earn that authority to speak. And also if it's organic, that true, that, you know, authenticity plays a factor. You can tell, I mean, I'm sure you've been in those locker rooms. You can tell, you know, this, 
we call it the, we call them the rah-rah guys. Yeah. You know, you use a lot of rah-rah, you know, it's like, come on, man, don't tell me to do that. I haven't seen you done it all year. And I think if you're willing to put in the work, you're willing to lead by example, you know, you can be a leader. The guys that are more vocal, you just obviously, you have to put in the work to earn that respect of the locker room. That's what I would say. I think I get asked a lot about leadership and what does it look like? And I think we all equate leadership to being vocal. Speeches, the rah-rah, and especially in a professional sports locker room, as intimate as it is and as many days as you spend together, I think authenticity, what Sean's saying, is the number one thing in being a good leader. There's no one way. You do it your way and you find your own way and be who you are. Be authentic to yourself. And I think people appreciate that. We all see through BS, right? There's nothing worse than someone coming up and we know that guy's pretending or that girl. That to me is the quickest way, I think, to lose trust. And the best way to, to gain it, I think, is even being vulnerable at times. Right? Sometimes it's not always saying the thing that, that what you think needs to be said. So for me, so much of it's in the message. You don't necessarily have to be the best player, but if, you're, if, if it's a team first message, if it is authentic, I think those are things that, listen, some people are just going to talk more than others, right? Depending on your skill set. But I think as long as it's authentic and it's about the team. Can I revisit the greatness question with you yeah. and Pat Mahomes? Yeah. Did you know? Did you have any idea? <laughs> like this dude is about yeah, to be the guy? It, but it, wasn't, it wasn't the first time I met him. It wasn't the first time I played catch with him at all. And I think it grew on me. And I do think there's a commonality between both Pat and Steph and that they kind of do it their own way. I think they have a unique skill set that they've kind of just, no one else looks like them. Their style of play, like how they do it. Like, you know, I, I, if you watch Pat, no one plays quarterback like Pat. And I think there was just this confidence in him. And, I, and actually, I don't want to, confidence is the wrong word. There's a joy in playing. Pat's dad played professional baseball for 14 years, so Pat grew up in and around sports. Pat played everything growing up. Pat loves to just play. Like if we had a ping pong table over there, he would love to go play ping pong. If we went out golfing, he'd love to go golf. If we had a, there's, a, there's a hoop up in the Kansas City's locker room. It's a big building like this. We played weekly because QB spent a ton of time together. We weekly would play Chiefs together. It was our version of horse. But that's just who he is. When we would go out and do individual drill, we would do these shotgun, like, quick draw drills, like, literally, like, kind of, like, who could get the ball the quickest, like a Wild West. And we would time each other, and, like, Pat just loves any and all of it. So, for me, also, the, to equate to, like, taking the last shot, Pat wants the ball. Pat wants the ball with two minutes left, no timeouts, all the odds stacked against him. Pat's going to have a smile on his face, embracing and being grateful for that challenge. And I do think it, I equate it a lot to taking the final shot in basketball, because a lot of people talk about Jordan and Steph, but like, those guys miss a lot. But the ability is, it doesn't waver the next one. It doesn't affect the next time. They're not afraid to shoot. They don't back down from the situation ever. And for me, again, like that, Pat has that mentality. It's pure when you're around it. I, I got a sense for that fairly quickly. About halfway through the year, Pat's just doing scout team. And I'm the starter. He didn't, ever, he didn't get to play. But about halfway through the year, I'll never forget because oftentimes while the scout team's going, I'm over with like the offensive coaches and we're kind of going through our stuff either for the next period or and I'll never forget some of the DBs coming and grabbing me one day and they're like, hey, you got to go check out some of these passes Pat's doing. Like, where he like no-looked us and he started like doing some of these no-look like slants and no-look crossing routes. I'm like, what are you talking about? And so sure enough, we would go like pull up a couple clips in the facility and I watch, I'm like, Pat's no, he, I mean, he's a rookie. 
and he's no looking off like our, we're a good team. We're a playoff team. We had, you know, Super Bowl aspirations. He's like no looking crossing routes and just stuff that obviously was abnormal. And I think for me, once he got to start the last game of the year that year, week 17, we'd clinched the playoffs and couldn't get a higher seed. So we rested the starters and we were at Denver and Pat played. And I think he quickly showed that processing. I was talking with Ted about this earlier. I think the number one thing to playing quarterback in any sport, especially basketball, as fast as it is, I don't care how physically gifted you are, you got to process. You have to process information fast. And for us as quarterbacks, it's the chess match of our 11 versus their 11, scheme to scheme, situation to situation, red zone, third down, short yardage. Like you got to know all this stuff. And uh, two minute and pack and process information. And as gifted as he is physically, that's where it starts. I didn't give you guys any prep questions for this necessarily. So if you need a minute to think about this, totally cool. But what's the toughest piece of feedback that a coach has ever given you, coach or teammate? Oh, that one's easy for me. Ooh, go for it. There's this idea, especially at the NFL, and I'd love to hear if it's like this in the NBA, that there's not a lot of development. It's this idea that you're a finished product. If you can't do something, let's just get somebody that can. Let's draft somebody that can, or let's free agent sign somebody or trade for somebody that can. And there's not... A lot of development. And so this is, as a quarter, I can't tell you how many coaches, the overwhelming amount of majority of coaches I've had, especially as a quarterback coach, say I'm throwing a slant to a guy. And ideally, you want to put it like a foot in front of his numbers. He's on the, mon- on the run, he's moving. You want to hit him running. If I put it behind him, guess what the coaching point is? Get it out in front. If I throw the ball a little <laughs> high, guess what the coaching point is? Get it down. I could have seen, I saw that before you. Like, I'm a professional quarterback. I know when I miss, you're doing absolutely nothing helping me right now by pointing out, hey, you got to get that ball down. Oh, really? And that is the vast majority of coaching in the NFL. And they think that's coaching and teaching and leadership. I'll never forget, I was lucky enough, obviously, Andy Reid, I think, is one of the best coaches I've ever been around. He's the first guy. He stands right behind the quarterback every single play at like 14 yards. So you drop back, you're right in front of him. Instant feedback. He coaches every position, but especially the quarterbacks. But he was the epitome of this, like, of the other way. I'm sorry. Like, if I threw a ball high, he would come back and he was, he was constantly analyzing, like, I think your base is a little too wide, maybe, right? I think maybe you're overstriding. Maybe try to bring that in. Or maybe, like, there was just constantly, like, things that actually were tangible, okay, to help me solve the problem. I very much appreciate that. But for me, that was, it's, a, it's a lot of the other, though. You'd be shocked. Yeah, it's interesting because hindsight bias, right? It's like, it's now that I'm on the front office side, it's like, it's so easy for us to see like, yeah, of course. But I mean, for me, honestly, I think I can't really remember anything specific. I think the hardest piece of advice that I got was from Larry Brown. And uh, he's an old school coach, very accomplished, won championships at all levels. But he just had all these like sayings that I just couldn't, you know, grass, you know, like run with it. It's like run with the, what? I have to dribble the basketball, you know? It's like, what, what, what do you, so uh, for me, um, you know, I think there was just a gap there, you know? <laughs> but yeah, that one for me was the hardest. How much do you guys in the off season, I've heard both schools of thought, so I just wanted to hear where you stand on this. How much do you spend the off season recharging and resetting versus Alex, to your point on Tom Brady, it seems like the guy takes, you know, three days and then he's back throwing with the team again. I just wonder how do you balance those two things and do you fall in one camp or another? What your teammates do, et cetera, on, on the offseason? You trying to add things to your game or shut it all down? For me, I think it was getting to a point of jo- enjoying 
all the different phases of the job, right? And that certainly playing is the most fun and there's other phases to it, even Monday through Friday or Saturday in the week. But certainly the off season was a big phase of that. And so when the season ended, I think the biggest thing was certainly a reflection, you know, with my coaches, what do I need to get better at? For me personally, introspective, as I watched my game, what do I really need to get better at? And then putting a plan in place, no different than what we just talked about. These are some tangible things I want to get better at this off season. How am I going to do that? What are ways to attain it? But for me, again, that like enjoying it, like I'm going to enjoy the off season. And I think if, if it is again, something that it's not, it wasn't brutal. It wasn't a chore. Like I, I liked it. I like, okay, I want to go try to get better in a couple of these areas is I'm going to go do it. And I can do it in a fun way, with fun people. It's low stress in the off season, I think, but like enjoying the different facets, whether it be training camp or season or off season, all those different things. Yeah. My journey was different because I was constantly rehabbing. So there was no off season, rarely, maybe two weeks, three weeks. And then, you know, it was kind of back to the grind as far as the weight room or rehab or so that, you know, my journey was a little bit different. I didn't really get to uh, enjoy the off seasons until probably I got to the Warriors because I was constantly working. I was constantly in and out of the NBA, constantly trying to prove myself and really get better at just being healthy. Like that was the main goal. Can I be available? Like they said, the best of ability is availability. You know, it's like, I just wanted to be available to give myself the best opportunity to get a long-term contract so I can prove what I can actually do on the court instead of just, you know, playing for my life, if you will. So I was constantly just in that survival mode throughout the big portion of my career until I got to the Warriors probably year nine, year 10. This idea of consistency, I feel like is very similar for both of you. I always felt like you were never going to lose the game. I never, like when you get the ball, I'm like, these guys are going to give us a shot at the game. I was like, give the ball to Livingston in the post and just let him put his back to the, to the hoop and just chalk it up there like it's going to be a good look at it, you know? And same with you, Alex, driving down the field. Is this idea of consistency, did you take, like, was it a point of pride to know that I want to be consistent? And if the answer is yes, how consistent are you in your day-to-day? How consistent does your preparation and process look? Are you guys incredibly routine-oriented to then cultivate this level of consistency on the field? For me, I think uh, consistency was really important. I learned a lot from mentors, you know, watching the vets, call them the old heads. Like uh, Kevin Garnett, you know, was one of the most consistent, hardworking guys that I've ever met. And when I say hardworking, meaning like he practiced the way he played. And so it was like we'd be in a shoot around and a walkthrough and this guy is like drenched. Dude, how? Uh, that's just the way that, you know, he prepared. And so just watching him, watching the level of success that he had, I think it was more about the mind and body connection. I want to do everything like I'm going to do in the game. And that even was all the way boiled down to the sleep, boiled down to what I'm putting in my body, boiled down to, you know, when am I showing up? You know, how long am I on my feet? And so I watched all of these things from him and really just kind of took that along my journey when I came here with the Warriors. And the question about consistency was important for me because, you know, I believe as a player, you know, I tell guys like, just get on the court, find something that you're good at and do that, you know, find a niche for you. 
And mine was my mid-range or turnaround shot or whatever the case may be. But also taking care of the basketball, you know, or all the details, right? I, I got to remember all the plays. And, you know, Alex, you know, as a quarterback, it's like you got to know other guys' positions and what you guys should be doing on the court. Being a point guard, for me, that was the IQ of the game, studying the game, watching the film, you know, doing all these things consistently. So when I get out on the court, you know, it's not extraordinary. You know, this is something that I just do every single day. The planning, the preparation that goes into it so you can be at peak performance, that's what gives you the mental confidence to perform, uh, especially when there's, you know, the pressure's up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as a quarterback, <laughs> Your success is determined by your consistency in a lot of ways. Like there's only one football and you're touching it every single play and you're making hundreds of decisions every single game. And all it takes, and this is the quick reality in the NFL, is like all it takes is a couple bad plays to ruin the day, not only for yourself, for the 10 guys in the huddle, the 53 guys on the sideline, all the coaches, all their families. Like there's a lot of responsibility that goes with handling the football and making decisions play in, play out. And consistency is really the true measure of success, especially at the NFL level. The ball is, is, is ultimately so valuable and you literally are critical in that and fundamental in that. And, and I think for me taking a lot of pride that there's a lot of people that are putting trust in me to go out there every single play and make the right decision. And so uh, for me, it was always striving towards that, right? And there was struggles as a young player trying to do too much at times and learning the hard way. And so I think also knowing this, and, and Sean, I'm sure it's the same, is like you don't know which play is going to be the difference maker. There's 75-odd plays in a game for each side. And ultimately, honestly, you turn on the film the next day, win or lose, you could probably pick out three or four that these were the deciding factors. These three or four plays. And you have no idea in the moment which ones they're going to be. And uh, that's how much parity there is. And that's the difference between winning and losing. And I think... As you learn that, especially, you know, at the professional level, like for me, it's not, it wasn't coincidence. It's a great pride that like, oh, this is my job. I'm here to be consistent, especially in regards to that. I'm like compulsively checking my watch because I don't want this to end, but unfortunately it has to. I close all these the same. I kind of want to change it for this one, but maybe when you think of a person and you think of the word grit, who comes to mind for you? Alex Smith. Stop. Stop. <laughs> like, what? Stop. Come on. Stop. <laughs> Come on. Stop. Come on. No, for me, it was my grandfather. Watching him get up every day, go to work, punch the clock. You know, he served. You know, he taught me values outside of sports. You know, I think it's, again, just the resiliency of, you know, just facing adversity, just taking your medicine. And for me, that, that's what ultimately I feel like gave me the strength to, to push forward. It's like, you know, this, this is in me. It's not on me. You know, this is a part of the journey and, you know, where I come from. Totally agree for me. It's my dad. Just the way I was raised, the values and ethics, you know, it, it, it wasn't always about necessarily high achieving or anything like that or accomplishments, but certainly just an approach to life. And uh, I think he's certainly a standard that I like, that I try to live up to that he set give it up for sean livingston and alex smith that's it thanks for tuning in feel free to check out more than 100 past interviews that we've done and more amazing guests to come every monday morning 
This episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you to all of my listeners for tuning in for an hour plus every week.